For many things in life, it takes time and effort before you can see meaningful improvement. But luckily for us, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted and ready to go in just two minutes. There are over 35 different options to choose from every week, and it doesn't just stop at lunch or dinner, they also have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Truly every meal I've had from Factor has been delicious, but most importantly for me, it's beyond easy with no cooking or prep and especially no cleanup. Plus Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved, so I'm saving money and eating healthier even on the days when I don't feel like cooking. If you'd like to get started today and get after your goals, head to factormeals.com lightspeed50 and use code lightspeed50 to get 50% off. That's code LIGHTSPEED50 at factormeals.com slash LIGHTSPEED50 to get 50% off. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamor of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Lightspeed. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. This month of September 2018, we are proud to celebrate Lightspeed's 100th issue. To commemorate this milestone, we have published a supersized issue with 10 original stories, more than twice the amount of original fiction than usual, plus 10 reprints and some special nonfiction to boot. What's more, this is a special bonus podcast. For that bonus, enjoy The Coin of Heart's Desire by Yun Ha Lee, narrated by Judy Young. It is copyright 2013 and saw its first publication in Once Upon a Time, edited by Paula Garan. Yoon Ha Lee is the author of Nine Fox Gambit, which came out from Solaris Books in 2016 and was a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, and Arthur C. Clarke Awards. The sequel, Raven Stratagem, was released in June 2017 and was a finalist for the 2018 Hugo Award. A third volume in the series, Revenant Gun, was released in 2018. Yoon's short fiction has appeared in Tor.com, Lightspeed Magazine, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, 
Clark's World, and other venues, as well as a short story collection, Conservation of Shadows. Lee grew up in both Houston and South Korea and majored in math at Cornell University. He now lives in Louisiana with his family and an extremely lazy cat and has not yet been eaten by gators. So let's buckle up, because we're going to light speed. The Coin of Heart's Desire by Yoon Ha Lee In an empire at the wide sea's boundaries, where the clouds were the color of alabaster and mother of pearl, and the winds bore the smells of salt and faraway fruits, the young and old of every caste gathered for their empress's funeral. In life, she had gone by the name Beryl Beneath the Storm. Now that she was dead, the court historians were already calling her Weave the Storm, for she had been a fearsome naval commander. The embalmers had anointed Weave the Storm in fragrant oils, and hidden her face, as was proper, with a mask carved from white jade. In one hand, they had placed a small banner sewn with the empire's sword and anchor emblem in dark blue. In the other, a sharp, unsheathed knife whose enameled hilt winked white and gold and blue. She had been dressed in heavy silk robes that had only been worn once before at the last Harvest Moon Festival. The Empire's people believed in supplying their ruler well for the life in the sea to come, so that she would intercede with the dragon spirits for them. The Empress had left behind a single daughter. She was only 13 years old, so the old Empress's advisors had named her early turn journeying. Turn had a gravity beyond her years. Even at the funeral, dressed in the white and gray robes of mourning, she was nearly impassive. If her eyes glistened when the priests chanted their blessings for the road into sunset, that was only to be expected. Before nightfall, the old empress's beer was placed upon a funeral boat, painted red to guide her sunward. One priest cut the boat loose, while the empress's guard set it ablaze with fire arrows. Turn's oldest advisor, a sage who had visited many foreign shrines in his youth, turned to her and said over the crackling flames and the lapping water, you must rest well tonight, my liege. Tomorrow you will hold court before the twenty-seven great families. They must see in you your mother's commanding presence for all your tender years. Turn knew perfectly well, as he did, that no matter how steely her composure the great families would see her as an easy mark. But she merely nodded and retired to the meditation chamber. She did not sleep that night, although no one would have blamed her if she had. 
Instead, she thought long and hard about the problem before her. At times, as she inhaled the sweet incense, she wanted desperately to call her mother back from the funeral ship and ask her advice. But the advice her mother had already passed down to her during the years of her life would have to suffice. Two hours before dawn, she rang a silver bell to summon her servants. Wake up the Chancellor of the Exchequer, she said to them. I need his advice. The Chancellor was not pleased to be roused from his sleep, and even less pleased when Turn explained her intent. By off the families, he said. It's a bad precedent. We're not buying them off, Turn said severely. We are displaying a bounty they cannot hope to equal. They will ask themselves, if the imperial house can afford to give away such treasures, what greater might is it concealing? The chancellor grumbled and muttered, but accompanied Turn to the first treasury. The treasury's walls were hung with silk scrolls, painted with exquisite landscapes, and piled high with illuminated books. The shapes of cranes and playful cats were stamped onto the book's covers in gold leaf. Tiny ivory figurines, no larger than a thumbnail, were arrayed like vigilant armies, if not for the curious fact that each one had the head of an extinct bird. Swords rested on polished stands, cabochons of opal and aquamarine gleaming from their gold-washed scabbards, their pale tassels decorated with knots sacred to the compass winds. There were crowns of braided wire, cradling fossils inscribed with fractured prophecies, some still tangled with the hair of long-dead sovereigns, and twisted ropes of pearls, perfectly graduated in size and color, from shimmering white to violet-gray to lustrous black. None of these will do, Turn said. These are quotidian treasures, fit for rewarding captains, but not for impressing the 27 great families. The Chancellor blanched. Surely you don't mean... But the young Empress had swept past him and was heading toward the second treasury. She drew out her heaviest key and opened the doors which swung with deceptive ease on their hinges. The guards at the door eyed her nervously. The smell of salt water and kelp was suddenly strong. A dragon's single, heavy-lidded eye opened in the darkness beyond the doors. Who desires to drown? asked the dragon spirit in a low, resonant voice. It sounded hopeful. Most people knew better than to disturb the guardian spirit. I am Weave the Storm's daughter, Turn said. They call me 
early turn journeying. The eye slitted. So you are, the dragon said, less threateningly. I've never understood your dynasty's need to change names at random intervals. It's dreadfully confusing. Does the tradition trouble you? Turn asked. It would be difficult to change, but... The light from the hallway glinted on the dragon's long teeth. Don't trouble yourself on my account, it said. Musingly, it added, It's remarkable how you resemble her around the eyes. Come in, then. This is unwise, the Chancellor said. Anything guarded by a dragon is locked away for a reason. Treasures hidden forever do no good, Turn said. She entered the treasury, leaving the Chancellor behind. The door swung quietly shut behind her. Despite the dragon's protection, it was difficult to breathe through the dream of ocean and difficult to move. Even the color of the light was like that of rain and lightning and foam mixed together. The smell of salt grew stronger, interspersed curiously with the fragrance of chrysanthemums. But then it was better than drowning. What brings you here? asked the dragon, swimming alongside her. Its coils revealed themselves in pearlescent flashes. I must select twenty-seven gifts for the twenty-seven great families to impress them with the dynasty's might, Turn said. I don't know what to give them. Is that all? the dragon said, sounding disappointed. There are suits of armor here for woman and man, horse and elephant, Give one to the head of each family, although I presume none of them are elephants. And if they should plot treachery, the ghosts that live in the armor will strike down your enemies. Unless you've invented gunpowder yet, the armor's no good against decent guns. It's so easy to lose track of time while drowsing here. Turn craned her head to look at the indistinct shapes of skeleton and coral. Gunpowder? she asked. Don't trouble yourself about it. It's not important. Shall I show you the armor? The undulating light revealed finely wrought armor paired with demon-faced masks or impressively spiked chamfrons. She could almost see her face distorted in the polished breastplates. That's no true gift, Turn said. Practical though it is, the dragon sighed gustily. Uh, an idealist. Well, then... What about this? As though they stood to either side of a book, 
a flotilla of paper boats bobbed toward them. Turn knelt to examine the boats, and half a verse was written on one's sail. Go ahead, the dragon said. Unfold it. She did. That's almost a poem by Crescent Sword Descending, she said, one of the empire's most celebrated admirals, who had turned back the Irulish invasion 349 years ago. But it's less elegant than the version my tutors taught me. That's because Crescent was a mediocre poet for all her victories at sea, the dragon said. Her empress had one of the court poets discreetly rewrite everything. Its tone of voice implied that it didn't understand this human undertaking either. In any case, each of the boats is inscribed with verses by some hero or admiral. If you float them in the sea on the night of a gravid moon, they will grow into fine warships. To restore them to their paper form, useful for avoiding docking fees, recite their verses on a new moon, and they're loyal, if that's a concern. They won't sail against you. Turn considered it. It's an impressive gift, but not quite right. She envisioned her subjects warring with each other. These, then, the dragon said, knotting and unknotting itself. A cold current rushed through the room, and the boats scattered, vanishing into dark corners. When the chill abated, twenty-seven fine coats were arrayed before them. Some were sewn with Baroque pearls and star sapphires, others embroidered with gold and silver thread. Some had ruffs lined with lace finer than foam other sleeves decorated with fantastic flowers of wire and stiff-dyed silk. One was white and pale blue and silver, like the moon on a snowy night. Another was deep orange and decorated with amber in which trapped insects spelled out liturgies in brittle characters. Yet another was black fading into smoke gray at the hems, with several translucent capes fluttering down from the collar like moth wings, each hung with tiny clapperless glass bells. They're marvelous indeed, Turn said. She peered more closely. Each coat, however different, had a glittering crest at its breast. Are those dragon scales? Indeed they are, the dragon said. There are dragons of every kind of storm imaginable. Ion storms, solar flares, the quantum froth of the emptiest vacuum. In any case, have you ever wondered what it's like to view the world from a dragon's perspective? Not especially, Turn said. 
In her daydreams, she had robed the imperial gardens, pretending she could understand the language of carp and cat, or could sleep among the mothering branches of the willow, that she could run away. But dutiful child that she was, she had never done so in truth. Each year at the Festival of Dragons, the dragon said, those who wear the coats will have the opportunity to take on a dragon's shape. It's not terribly useful for insurrection, if that's what the expression in your eyes means. But dragons love to dance, and sometimes people so transformed choose never to abandon that dance. At festival's end, whoever stands in a dragon's skin remains in that dragon's skin. Turn walked among the coats, careful not to touch them, even with the hem of her gown. The dragon rippled as it watched her, but forbore comment. Yes, she said at last, this will do. The coats were wondrous, but they offered their wearers an honest choice. Or so she hoped. What of something for yourself? The dragon asked. Some undercurrent in the dragon's tone made her look at it sharply. It's one thing to use the treasury for a matter of state, she said, and another to pillage it for my own pleasure. You're the empress, aren't you? Which makes it all the more important that I behave responsibly. Turn tilted her chin up to meet the dragon's dispassionate gaze. The treasury isn't the only reason you're here, is it? Ah, so you figured it out. The dragon's smile showed no teeth. It extended a hand with eight clawed fingers, dangling from the smallest claw, which was still longer than Turn's hand, was a disc, rather like a coin, except it was made of dull green stone, with specks in it like blood clots, and the hole drilled through the center was circular rather than a square. The most interesting thing was the snake carved into the surface, with every scale polished and distinct. Is it watching me? Turn asked, disconcerted by the way the snake's eyes were a brighter red than the flecks in the rest of the stone. What is it called? That is the coin of heart's desire, the dragon said, with no particular inflection. Nothing with such a name can possibly bring good fortune, she said. It never harmed your mother. Then why had she never heard of it? In all the transactions I have ever witnessed, Turn said, a coin must be spent to be used. The dragon's smile displayed the full length of its jagged teeth. You're not wrong. Turn inspected the coin again. She was certain that the snake had changed position, 
How many of my ancestors have spent the coin? I lost count, the dragon said. This business of rain names and funeral names makes it difficult to keep track. But some never spent it at all. Why isn't it mentioned in the histories? The dragon's eyelid dipped. Because I like to eat historians. Their bones whisper the most delicious secrets. There was a saying in the empire. Never sing before an empty shrine. Never dance with ghosts at low tide. Never cross jests with a dragon. Turn said slowly, Yet the empire has prospered, if those historians are to be believed. We can't all have failed this test. The dragon did not deny that it was indeed a test. Turn looked over her shoulder at the door. Its outline was visible only as an intersection of shadow and murky light. There's no other way out of this treasury. When the dragon remained silent, she touched the coin with her fingertip. It was warm, as if it had lain in the eye of a hidden sun. She half expected to feel the rasp of scales as the snake moved again. The dragon withdrew its hand suddenly. The coin dropped and turned caught it reflexively. I'm afraid not, it said. But that's not to say that you won't receive some benefit on your way out. The question is, what do you want? What did my mother trade it for? She asked to leave the treasury and never return, the dragon said. Two days and two nights she spent in here, contemplating her options, and that was what she came up with. She didn't trust the treasury's temptations. Of course, she thought she had been here much longer. Time moves differently underwater, after all. Turn Try to imagine her mother as a young woman, newly crowned empress, hazy with sleeplessness and desperate to escape this test. How long have I been here? she asked. Not long as humans reckon time, the dragon said. Its cheerfulness was not reassuring. The gifts for the twenty-seven families... Turn said, Whatever becomes of me, will they be delivered to the court? The dragon waved a hand. They're yours to dispose of as you see fit. I'm done looking at them, so I don't see why not. Turn glanced around again. She might be here for a very long time if this went wrong. I know what I want she said. The dragon drifted closer. Her voice quavered in spite of herself, but she looked the dragon full in the eye. 
I don't know what bargain has bound you here all these years, but I want no more of it. Let this coin purchase your freedom. The dragon was silent for a long time. At last it said, Dragons are unpredictable allies, you know. I will take that chance, Turn said. Was this reckless? Perhaps. But as she saw it, the empresses of her line were as much prisoners as the dragon was. Best to let the dragon pursue its own destiny. Someone needs to guard the treasury, you know. The dragon canted its head. You don't seem to have a spare dragon. So this was the real price. I will stay, Turn whispered. A determined thief would make mince of you in minutes, you realize. Turn frowned. I thought you'd want to leave. I do, the dragon said, but I take my duty seriously. There's only one thing to be done, then. Pass me the coin, will you? Not sure whether she was more bemused or bewildered, Turn did so. She felt a curious pang as the coin left her hand. The guardian of a dragon's treasure, the dragon said, should have a dragon's own defenses. With that, the dragon slipped out of its skin so subtly that at first Turn did not realize what was happening. Scales sparkled deep blue and kelp green, piling up in irregular coils around the dragon's legs. The dragon itself took on the shape of a woman perhaps ten years older than Turn. Her black hair drifted around her face. Her eyes were brown. Indeed, she could have been one of Turn's people. The skin is yours, the dragon said in much the same voice as before, to use or discard as you please. Don't tell me that I never gave you choices. At least wear something, Turn said, appalled at the thought of the dragon surprising the Chancellor while not wearing any human clothes. Your empire won't thank you for giving it to a dragon to rule, the dragon said, although it did at least choose for itself a plain robe of wool. You will rule with the dragon's sense of justice, Turn said, which is more than I can expect from the women and men out there who are hungering after a child's throne. She handed over the keys of her office. The dragon's smile was respectful. We'll see. And, pausing at the threshold, I won't forget you. The door closed, and Turn was left with the coin 
and the dragon skin. It was not until many generations later, when one of the dragon's descendants braved the second treasury, that Turn learned that she had been given a dragon name. Not a rain name, for she was done with that, and not a funeral name, for she was far from dead. The empire she had seeded was now calling her Devourer of Bargains. After all this time, she had come around to the dragon's own opinion on this matter. It was a confusing human practice, but she wasn't in any position to argue. A number of generations after that, when a different empress braved the treasury, Turn asked what had become of the dragon empress from so many years ago. The empress said, According to the records, she disappeared after a sixty-year reign, leaving only a note that said, I'm looking for another coin. The empress was looking wistfully at a particularly lovely barrel set in silver filigree. Eventually, she returned her attention to turn, but she kept glancing back at it. The woman's face looked oddly familiar, but Turn couldn't place it. Probably a trick of her imagination. The rest of the conversation was fairly predictable, but Turn contemplated the dragon's sense of justice once the empress had gone. Time moved differently underwater, after all. She could wait. Welcome back. You have been listening to Judy Young reading The Coin of Heart's Desire by Yun Ha Lee. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Our editor is John Joseph Adams, and this podcast is copyright 2018 by Lightspeed Magazine. As a listener to this podcast, you know that we publish it and most of the rest of our content for free online. If you don't already support our Hugo Award-winning journal, please consider checking out our many options, including ebook subscriptions and recurring patronage via Patreon and Drip, at lightspeedmagazine.com support. Our sponsor this month is Houghton Mifflin Harcourt slash John Joseph Adams Books, reminding you their featured title this month is The Spaceship Next Door by Jean Doucette. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rutnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Be sure to check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production was by yours truly. Our music and sound logos were composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed.
hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy, or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.